Dangerous Ideas Podcast, Episode 2, Absolute Freedom, with Adam Kokesh. They say that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but what about absolute freedom? What does that look like? And is it even possible? You may already be familiar with Ron Paul-style libertarianism where they want to restrain the government and limit it to the bare-bones constitutional boundaries. But what about another kind of libertarianism that wants to go even further? And before we dive into that, I want to address one comment I received from a listener. He was actually asking whether this was just going to be a right-wing or libertarian podcast or whether I was going to branch out to other guests to interview them. And it just so happens that this is how the cards have fallen with the first few shows that they have been libertarian and right-wing interviews. But in the future, we're looking to get more diversity of thought. And with that being said, me personally being a Democrat, I enjoy talking to people that are actually of a different viewpoint than my own because that way I can learn from them and broaden my own perspective. And so I'll actually share with you something that I find quite amusing is that when I've done some of these interviews or just talk with people informally that have very different beliefs than I do, sometimes they look at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> They're wondering, you know, if you're a liberal Democrat and you voted for Hillary, what in the world are you doing talking to me? Why do you want to hear what I have to say? And I think that is odd. We should strive towards a place where we all want to hear what each other has to say and that we're not afraid to be exposed to new and different and dangerous ideas. I think it should be the norm where we want to converse with each other instead of staying in our own bubbles. I always say I, I never learn anything by talking and I learn the most by listening to people that I disagree with. And I think a lot of it has to do with how we approach these topics. When I'm talking to someone, you know, I speak to them with civility and respect. So that way, even if we do disagree, it's not going to be something that's taken personally. We're not shouting at each other. I remember growing up, you know, you could definitely tell the kids that were watching certain news channels because they would parrot the exact phrases of the news anchors and then they would also ape their action. They'd be slamming their fists when they were talking. They would be yelling. It brings to mind a show that Glenn Beck hosted once. And I remember one time in mid-broadcast, he just broke down crying. And I thought, that is not the proper way to display information because it's human beings as as a natural instinct if you see someone else emotional and excited that kind of rubs off on you and so when you're emotional and excited you don't think clearly you cannot filter information as you normally would logically so think about that when you see someone that's getting very excited or someone that's shouting they may actually be trying to manipulate you into a position where you are less critical of their ideas and you're more open to them than you normally would be. And I think that, unfortunately, interviews on TV nowadays are only suited towards that. They're sort of geared to give the speakers only a few seconds and they're competing with each other, shouting over each other, and they're really just trying to make one-liners that go viral. That's really the only thing that you can hope for in like a 30-second clip, right? So, whereas TV interviews are geared towards that sort of a setup. These podcasts let us delve deeper into issues and they actually let you engage with the speaker so that they're not actually shouting or arguing with you. You're able to have a calm and thoughtful discussion. And I hope that adds to the richness of the political debate. With that in mind, let's shift towards the topic of the interview today. I'm interviewing a libertarian who's running for president. And, you know, a lot of times people dismiss libertarians out of hand as saying that they're unreasonable, not realistic, or maybe that they're too 
head in the clouds type of thing. If you listen to this interview, you'll notice that Adam makes some pretty good points. It's really hard to argue with the logic that if you ask someone, well, don't you want more control over your own life? Don't you want more say in the rules that affect you? The basic premise being that instead of a centralized federal government, they would decentralize it first towards the states and then ideally towards local communities in his vision. So that's a pretty compelling argument when you ask someone if they want more control over their lives, and the best way to do that is to have some local control over that. Now to counterbalance this, I would say this version of libertarianism is advocating for a particularly large and drastic change, so in my mind they would have to make a really strong case for that. And so that's maybe something to keep in mind when you're listening to this podcast is, is the benefits that they're suggesting will happen realistic and if so are they proportionate to the amount of change that they're proposing and what are the risks to that change and you got to remember this is all on a sliding scale even amongst libertarians there's a wide spectrum of beliefs grover norquist who's not necessarily a libertarian he's an advocate for tax reform had a famous quote back in 2001 he said i don't want to abolish government i want to be able to drown it in the bathtub and back then people thought that was extreme well, now we're going to talk with a guy who does want to drown in the bathtub. This is Absolute Freedom with Adam Kokish. Hey, everyone, this is Jordan. I'm here with Adam Kokesh. Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and your movement. Well, I could hardly call it my movement. Certainly. I, I like to think of myself as part of the freedom movement, which could be defined as humanity's progress towards a free society, towards a nonviolent society, which is the same thing, essentially. Or the movement of people who conscientiously understand this and see that we're a long way from this ideal, but that we are approaching it, and the sooner the better, and the sooner we can get past this paradigm of violent central control of governments, the better off humanity will be. As for me, uh, I'm just the guy who wrote the book called Freedom <laughs> uh, while I was in jail for civil disobedience, and I wrote it to be the ultimate red pill, the, the easiest way for someone to go from zero to I get it in terms of government and violence and social organization, and this was something that uh, I woke up to over... Uh, a long period of time actually i'm a pretty slow learner you know i was in the marines I, I do like to learn the hard way we learn but we we do learn the hard way and being in the marine corps led me to volunteer to go to iraq i was in fallujah in 2004 for the first battle and saw enough that when i came home uh well after after a little more uh, understanding and growth for myself realizing that the war was not just a mistake but a horrific crime mm. I got active with Iraq Veterans Against the War and realized that it wasn't enough to be against this war or this policy or anything like that, but that there was always something deeper to be, uh, you know, behind it, that war was a symptom of, uh, that war was, you know, a, a symptom of militarism, which was simply one component of government and statism as a, a philosophy or, or, I mean... It's hard to call it a philosophy when it's just a giant ripoff, when it's a means of violent control. So uh, from Iraq to Iraq Veterans Against the War to I ran, uh, ran for Congress as a Republican in New Mexico, <laughs> endorsed by Ron Paul as part of the libertarian insurgency into the Republican Party that Ron Paul was leading. 
And uh, since then, I had a TV show and a radio show. And now I'm getting ready to run for president in 2020 on the platform of dissolving the entire federal government. Well, let's unpack some of these ideas a little bit. You mentioned your book, and I actually just listened to the audiobook recently, so that was pretty interesting. I actually had a lot of agreement with what you were talking about. So let's let's unload some of these terms that you use. Um, one of them is statist or collectivist, maybe. How would you describe that? What do you define it as? Sure. Well, i got to separate collectivism from statism, and I think a lot of people make that mistake because libertarianism, first, if I may, mm -hmm. is a philosophy based on self-ownership. That is, you own yourself. This is the foundation of ethics, which leads us to the non-aggression principle, which is the idea that all human relations should be free of aggression. They should be non-aggressive. And non-aggressive doesn't mean not aggressively passionate. No, we mean aggressive in a very specific sense, aggressive as opposed to defensive. So an act of aggression is a violation of someone else's self-ownership, a violation of their rights or their person or their property. And this gives us the ideal of voluntarism, that every human relationship should be voluntary, that is chosenly or voluntarily chosen to be a part of by everyone participating, free of force and fraud and coercion. So libertarianism doesn't say that we should be collectivist or not collectivist. It simply says that if we are to form collectives, they should be nonviolent collectives. Mm. And when we talk about statism, that can be defined a number of different ways. We talk about belief in the state, and the state is a monopoly on violence in a given territory. And, and for all the you know justifications that people will try to make for it, any honest statist, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, can admit, yeah, okay, the state is... Um, territorial monopoly and they might call it authority but when you break it down what is that authority because that's not well government is in charge because they're the smartest people or because they're the most innovative or they're the most capable no it's because they're the ones who have the guns and they back up everything that they say with violence and that's what makes the state as an institution different from uh, a private or voluntary or community-based nonviolent organization so i would define statism as a belief in the goodness, necessity, or righteousness of organized violence. And so I'll just give you what my takeaway was, the quick 101 from listening to your book, and you can tell me if I got it right. So property rights and non-aggression form the core of it. So basically, a person has the right to their labor and to whatever property they own. So there's property rights. Well, if, if I may, and I know this is a bit of a an esoteric principle for some libertarians. I do think it's important when we when you introduce it by property rights because that's a secondary principle. It's secondary to self-ownership. Okay. And self-ownership, you can say, is property, but it's the property of the self. If you are an independent consciousness in a physical body, mm -hmm. no, excuse me, no one else owns that but you, the consciousness living in that body. Right. And so that is a sort of absolute concept of property, right? The body in which the consciousness is inhabiting, that that is owned by the consciousness. The property outside of that is kind of implied by that, right? So you own your labor, you control the actions of that body, you own the product of your labor. If you mix your labor with natural resources, and this is go going back to the Locke concept from you know, Lockean uh, philosophy, that if you mix your labor with natural resources, then you own it. But there's an important thing that a lot of libertarians forget, which is that there's a lot of subjectivity to this. So if I put up a fence around 10 acres and call it my homestead and say, yes, I own 10 acres, this is mine, it's kind of hard to refute that. I've put up a fence around it, I'm occupying it, I'm using it. 
But if I put up a fence around a million acres and said, <laughs> well, screw you, you have to stay out of this, I own it all because I put a fence around it, it would be kind of obvious. We don't really recognize that as a legitimate property claim. So the core of it, you're, you're very close, but it, I think it's really important to identify first principles and secondary principles. Self-ownership is the first principle. Property is a secondary principle that flows from that. Gotcha. So then the next part I was going to mention is non-aggression. So I don't have any right to impose myself on you to hurt you or to take what you have, basically, non-aggression. Correct. You should, and then this, the follow-on to that is voluntarism. Yes, so any relationship I have with you, whether it be financial or friendship or something like that, just got to be voluntary. Right. And so I think most people, when they hear these principles, would agree with them, generally speaking. Then if we want to change it a little bit, what about when we apply it to government? Maybe that's where we might differ. So you're saying the government, by exercising taxation, by exercising in the act of war, they are violating these principles. Is that what you're saying? Well, in everything that it does, government violates those principles. Everything that it does is backed up by either an unlegitimate or an illegitimate property rights claim or through taxation, which is theft. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, of voluntarism is, is kind of based on a, a very simple observation about human relationships, that nonviolent relationships are better for human happiness than violent relationships. You know, if you are, if, if every relationship is voluntary, it means that every participant is choosing to be in that relationship, which means that they perceive it to be in their own best interest. They are choosing it out of their own free will, as opposed to it being forced on them, someone putting a gun to their head and saying, you will do this. So another concept that your books introduces is called the racket. And I just like the way you term it. Talk, talk to us. What is the racket? Well, I think government itself is a racket in the traditional sense of the word, that it's a scam. It's a, it's a violent crime that uses lies to make it more acceptable. And its purpose is to control you and rip you off. Uh, they're willing to kill and steal to, to maintain this racket. And it's really important to understand what the purpose is because it, it, it's not just about uh, being in charge it's 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 about control and exploitation so that people are I mean you end up working for the people who are the string pullers behind government and for the average American now you're working for government literally half the year so in reading your book and in listening to your presentation today I, I noticed a few things that I would characterize make you unique as a libertarian, or at least different than what I've experienced. So one thing I want to mention is you talked about the Constitution, and it seems like you don't necessarily feel like we should keep it or adhere to it strictly. You think we can do better? Well, I think everybody who's a libertarian who understands that government is illegitimate understands that the Constitution is what authorizes the illegitimacy of government, or at least pretends to, right? The, the Constitution uh, is based on, is, is the people who want to be government coming up with an excuse for using violence against peaceful people. So it is an incredibly unlibertarian document. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think any libertarian uh, would be able to justify, you know, the, the Constitution or any, anything that, you know, resembles that even calling itself government. Uh, I think what's important, though, when you say most libertarians is that, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a very specific definition of libertarian. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately or fortunately, and, and I could see it either way, the word libertarian has become kind of like liberal and conservative. 
and very nebulous and in some ways meaningless. Hmm. And conservative has a very specific definition. It means preserving someone who believes in preserving existing social institutions. A liberal or a progressive means someone who is looking forward to change existing social institutions to make progress, right? Or, you know, as the word progressive itself suggests. Libertarian specifically means belief in the philosophy of freedom, self-ownership, non-aggression, voluntarism. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, you could say a lot of people, like even Sean Hannity, you know, I mean, and, and, and part of me wants to go, it's awesome. Everybody can call themselves libertarian. And, and I would say that every, every creature that is an independent consciousness that has a free will is a libertarian. They just haven't realized it yet necessarily. And that there are people who don't really understand that calling themselves a libertarian, like Sean Hannity. You know, I'm, I'm a libertarian leaning conservative, which was like saying I'm, I'm a pregnant leaning woman. It's like, no, it, it's kind of a binary function. Either you're pregnant or you're not. Either you get libertarianism or, or you don't. And I, I think it's more of a fortunate thing. I look at this as a good development. And it, like I said in my talk tonight, I, I really do have a problem with libertarianism being presented as anything other than an ethical philosophy because I identified as a libertarian when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I identified as a libertarian when I volunteered to go to Iraq and I identified as a libertarian when I tortured people in Fallujah. That means that I didn't understand what it meant. And it was kind of a gateway for me to hear through the political version of the message, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, that idea first. But that doesn't change how people live. That just makes them feel like they're better at politics. Hmm. So, I think what I was saying is that most libertarians I know are really gung ho about the Constitution. Like Ron Paul seems that way. Maybe I'm. Maybe you have a different understanding. Some of the other folks that I've talked to, like they, they take an oath when they join the military to uphold the Constitution, and they take that seriously. But you're saying maybe you have a different view, or you have a different understanding. Well, I think most people who, I mean, there's an obvious contradiction. If you believe in free will, you cannot be governed. If you consent to govern, government, though. Then it's not government. What is it? Then it would be a homeowner's association or an insurance company or a private defense firm or a dispute resolution organization or a fire services provider. You know, I mean, there are lots of things that you would call it if it's voluntary, if it's as an organization that are not government. But to govern, the word govern means to control. If you are being controlled, you are not free. And when we talk about the modern institutions of government, we're talking about coercive entities that back up everything they, they do at the bottom line with the threat of violence. So you're basically saying that almost from the start of this country, I don't know if you want to consider the Articles of Confederation, but let's just say the Constitution going forward, you're saying that is maybe not in line with what our founders wanted, or would you even... Oh, of course. Well, the, there's there. The, I, I like to separate the founders from the framers. Okay. The founders were the ones who put their lives on the line with the Declaration of Independence, the people who fought behind them to overthrow the biggest empire the world had ever known at that time. Mm -hmm. The framers who came in and wrote the Constitution were the usurpers of the American ideals of freedom, who created a new central authority explicitly to create a system of taxation and the opportunity to create a new central bank and a standing army, which the founders specifically were against. They said that we shouldn't have a standing army, that that's anti-freedom, that we should be relying on the better defense of the militia. 
So yeah, I think it's really clear that the Constitution is an anti-freedom document, top to bottom. The only thing that you could say is not would be the Bill of Rights, which are things that government should not do, not that it should do. And if anything, the correct view of history now, we see pretty obvious, is that the Bill of Rights was put in there as a, sort of a way to get people to accept all of the new, the power grab that was the creation of the constitutional American government. Between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Right, well, the Anti-Federalists lost to the Federalists when they created the Constitution. Another thing that I noticed in your book is that you, you use the words inevitable a few times. So you're in, you were, I think you were saying the next stage of, of government and for our democracy will be no government. Well, no, decentralization of government. Decentralization of yeah. government. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you say that it's inevitable? And I'm just, I'm going to point out an irony here. So the other guy who used that kind of language, that the, this phase of government is inevitable, was Karl Marx. Marx. Well, history has proven him wrong. Uh -huh. And I don't think at the time of his writing, he had the capability of looking at the long view of human history that we have today, that we're capable of with statistical certainty, with absolute academic validity. And I cite the work of Professor Steven Pinker at Harvard, who has shown that without uh, any doubt, we are living in the most peaceful times in human history right now. Today, you are less likely to be subject to violence at the hands of another human being than ever before. And unless you can show me that the trends driving that are in any way going to be reversed, I think that that trend is going to continue. It seems like a very logical prediction. Of course, things can change, and I'm certainly open to that. The caveats that I would put on this are, yes, we could blow ourselves all up with a nuclear war first. Yes, an asteroid could smash into the Earth, but if you look at the natural course of progression of intelligent life in general, that it seeks greater harmony, greater cooperation, that multi-cell organisms beat out single-cell organisms in competition for resources, that communities of people who cooperate versus those who fight do better in the competition between human societies and that individuals within human the human society who are able to promote the most peace and cooperation and commerce are the ones who prosper those are basic forces of just reality you could describe these in economic terms that cooperation synergy efficiency will outcompete things that are less efficient less effective less synergistic so by that I mean, yes, that is the natural trend. And when you understand freedom, when we talk about a voluntary society as one of universal nonviolence, yeah, we're getting there. And Go so, team people. And so you're saying that because government is less efficient than a freer society, therefore we're, on, we're inevitably going to trend towards decentralization. That violent relationships are always less conducive to human happiness, productivity, than violent coercive relationships and that the market naturally has a preference for nonviolence. And again when you say not when you when you say violent you're probably talking about the government. Cuz like you say we're not we're not beating each other up in the streets so I guess when you're talking about violent relationships you're talking about the tax man taking yeah. my money. Well uh, yeah and it's it's a lot of society is controlled by a very small threat of violence and a smaller application of it. And it's like you know, everybody knows, if you stop paying your taxes, eventually government comes and takes your stuff, and eventually they come and take you. And that's violence. And we use all sorts of language to avoid it, and you might say, well, that's coercion, that's not violence. Well, yeah, but because it's coercion, there's the threat of violence behind it. It's really impossible to avoid. You're almost 
similar to an anarchist, right? Because you want to decentralize and abolish government. So what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist then, in your opinion? Well, I think a libertarian is an anarchist in the true sense of the word, but the word has come to mean a lot of different things, very deliberately misapplied to mean chaos. So when we talk about anarchy in a libertarian political context, we mean what the word literally means, which is no rulers. That doesn't mean no rules. That means nobody to rule over you with violence. It means self-government, self-rule. So in that sense, I think libertarian and anarchy are uh, synonymous. But we don't use the word anarchy. We use the word libertarianism or liberty because it means something much more precise in, uh, in the context in which the word anarchy has been perverted, not just in that definitional sense, but also politically in that it's been associated with a lot of leftists who, by definition, aren't anarchists, which is really kind of funny because if you say, um, I'm an anarchist, I don't want government, but I want this other form of rule, then you're just advocating for a different form of government, a different form of socially sanctioned violence that violates individual rights, which is, I think, what a lot of anarchists who are really anarcho-socialists or anarcho-communists, which makes them a different kind of statist, arguably uh, not libertarian at least. Now, a lot of them are... You know, they, they, they might have a different view of property rights that I would disagree with, but they're fundamentally voluntarists. And I think in the bigger libertarian coalition, they're certainly closer to libertarians than Sean Hannity, mm. you know. And in that sense, a lot of them need to be welcomed and invited. And I, and I wouldn't, you know, play too much with these semantic games when if you believe in the direction of freedom and you want to see government decentralized, localized down to the community level, then you're on the right side of the line in the sand, and we're all on the same team. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point. So you know the origin of the word terror, where it originally comes from? No. Uh, the French reign of terror. So okay. it's actually originally from a government. We didn't have a action. word for terror before the French reign of terror. But that's really? what that's where that's where the roots come from. It's not like some fanatical lone that's wolf. That's funny. Yeah, we we yeah. owe the word terror itself to government. Yeah. I, so I'm helping your argument here. All right. Thank you. You know, I'm coming from a different perspective. I. I'm a liberal, left-leaning Democrat, I'm moving to the center a little bit each and every day, but you might call me a statist. Well, so what do you think violence is helpful for? All right, let's go. Or organized, organized institutional violence. All right, sure, we'll go there. Let's say you have an issue in terms of a violent neighbor or someone's trying to hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. So I like the ability to have the police step in on my behalf and have that taken care of and mm -hmm. have them do it under the color of law. They have badges, and so we know clearly one person's in the right, one person's in the wrong. That seems reasonable, right? Well, hold on. I was with you to that last part. Okay. Clear one person is right, one person is wrong, right? Well, if there's a theft involved, it might be that that theft of taxes is how those police salaries were paid in the first place so how can you say that they're in the right or that they have any kind of moral authority when the foundation is theft but you're asking for a particular security service now you want to be able to call on somebody when your neighbor becomes a, a threat to you or, or threatens your property right now you only have one choice in who to call under government that has a monopoly on that service you pretty much have to call the police yeah wouldn't you rather have a choice and have accountability for the people providing that service? Mm, uh, at this point, I would say no, because I'll give you two reasons. The first one is that then my neighbor could potentially do the same thing, right? If he's got as much or more money than I do, or maybe just more friends Actually, than I do. Actually, no, and I'll tell you why. And this okay. is an important mechanism, because you're, you're raising the possibility of something that is very real. And it's actually a much more dangerous real possibility under government because governments 
protect people from accountability and you know this right and this is one of the features of government that if you're a cop and you shoot someone you get paid vacation right that bad cops can't get fired right away because there's unions and laws and things that protect them and generally because they're in cahoots with the politicians and the legal system judges don't prosecute police officers government you know prosecutional offices and judges very much favor the law enforcement so you want them to be accountable is what you're saying, right? Is that you want that widespread accountability for the people who are providing services of force, services of violence, right? And I would say that if it's defensive, legitimate, maybe we don't want to use the word violence, but regardless, that's a semantic distinction. If you had a market for this, if you had community-based security services and the people that you called shot your neighbor's dog, they would get fired immediately. They would be held accountable for it. If they showed up at the wrong address and raided the wrong home and threw a smoke grenade at a baby and destroyed its face and sent him to the emergency room, they would be fired immediately and they would be held accountable for it. We have greater accountability through widespread immediate accountability to the people than we do when we detach from that accountability through government. The consequences that you see as the negative effects that you put up with, that you're comfortable with, are actually all directly caused by government and would go away without it. Well, I mean, I think it's useful to use what you talked about earlier as like primary concerns or primary objectives and then secondary ones. So my primary one isn't necessarily the problems with the police, which I agree, you know, the justice system does need reform in many ways. It's imperfect, as, as we all know. But I think the primary concern would be to take care of the immediate problem that I mentioned, which was, you know, the violence of someone else trying to hurt Your neighbor. Me. Okay, hold on a second. I got to stop you right there. Okay. Because this is a huge problem of perspective. I'm going I'm to really call you out if you don't mind. Sure, with sure. With all due respect. Love it. You're saying that because you want services to be able to put your violent neighbor in check, you're willing to put up with the government monopoly on justice and safety services, which means that you're willing to see millions of young black men's lives ruined in a, under a racist war on drugs in a criminal injustice system that disfavors minorities, people of lesser privilege, the poor, the working class at the expense of everybody to serve the rich, the the string pullers, the, the super class behind government. And even if what you're saying is, is uh, something that, that you want and you can't see that there's another option, it's, I think, a gross misplacement of your priorities, your values, if what you're really concerned with is peace, safety, security for everyone, that you're not willing to take the risk of exploring what a market solution or a community or a nonviolent solution would be to the violent monopoly when you know that the consequences of going with that violent monopoly are vast injustices far beyond any neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor violence, that the crimes of the government under the, the guise of the war on drugs, under the guise of the war on poverty and everything else that the government does, that those consequences are far worse. And I think it's kind of sad, and here's your wake-up call. You have been lied to in such a way that you believe you have a greater thing to fear from your neighbors than your government. Interesting, interesting. I mean, I'll meet, I'll meet you in the middle somewhere in that I definitely agree that the justice system needs reform. I don't necessarily think it's beyond all repair. I don't think it's hopeless that we have to abandon the whole system yet completely. Well, the, the, the thing is that we need an orderly transition, and that's decentralization. A lot of the corruption of the justice system, you know, the fish rots from the head down, is come because the federal government creates the laws that local agencies are required to enforce and that they collect federal dollars that come in the form of bonuses and militarization and all the extra gear and goodies that they get. And so I think you would agree, correct me if I'm wrong, I think, again, if you're looking to create a better world, 
this is the most important thing that we can agree on is that communities should have a greater say in their governments and that the way we move forward in that is by localization of government by taking it apart from the top down and that everything that you think that you want out of law enforcement will even under a government system be better when you have more local accountability than the detachment we have with the federal government today i i see I can see your point. I agree with it up to an extent. I might not agree with it in the scope or the way that we achieve those goals. I knew someone at one point who was from an area that had a corrupt local government. He had a very negative view of local governments. He's saying they have less transparency and less accountability and just having less resources at stake. Being a local government, there's mm -hmm. less accountability. So I, I can so, see okay, different so things. So it's, it, again, it's a, a small data point to put in perspective. Yes, there sure. are corrupt local governments. The reason that corruption is possible is because they are subsidiaries of a larger racket that protects them. And again, in terms of putting this in ethical scale, what was the last time a local government just, whoops, lost $6 trillion? Or whoops, just invaded a country and killed a million people for no good reason? Well, they don't have those kind of resources available to them, but Thank maybe, goodness. May, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe on the scale but they've that's done the similar But that's things. the point, is that when you keep government local and community-based, it doesn't grow the outsized, violent capabilities of doing all of the evils that large centralized governments can commit. I'll give you that. Uh, I agree with that. Earlier you said that the local governments are required to enforce federal laws, or are they incentivized to Both. enforce federal Both laws? Both, in many ways. Okay. The, the second reason, just briefly I'll touch on this, is the reason why I don't think private security forces could be abused. Well, let me say it this way. I think private security forces could be abused if you look at a historical example. Hey, of course. We're, we're not saying it's perfect. Of mm -hmm. course, they can, anything can be abused. But when you take away the violent protection from accountability, obviously there's going to be a scale less abuse scale less okay so while we're on the topic of violence you're not a fan of war you were a veteran you served over there you saw and experienced and did things you didn't like in the book i think you were saying that there are no good wars or maybe mm -hmm. you can say it better yeah, than i can absolutely well there's no such thing as a just war there may be Never. one just side but even then it's unjust because the greatest defense as our founders advocated, is a well-armed population that refuses to be governed by anyone. So to say that we should have a war as opposed to a militia resistance, a guerrilla resistance, or a nonviolent resistance to an invasion, yeah, I think it only makes the violence worse. But I think that assumes somewhere in your book you also said that governments, the racket, they just want to take over a certain area and a population to expand the racket. They mm -hmm. use a potential mm -hmm. tax farm, they're going to conquer your land, and that's it. But what if they have other intentions? What if they have no intention of conquering the populace? It could be worse than that. Extermination. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Could so be worse. So how is guerrillas going to stand up to modern military technology? You and me with a couple rifles outside aren't going to do anything if the Russians invade. They're going to steamroll us. So you're not familiar with the history of the American Revolution and how the uh, Patriots I, won I, that I think war. That's, I think that's a bit of a red herring. Because <laughs> the war that Britain was fighting against us wasn't the same. Like, if it was for all the marbles, they would have fought a lot harder. They were more occupied with the French than they were with us. It's a tactical point. If you're going to fight against an enemy that's invading, do you want to dress up all of your best and brightest in silly costumes and make it really easy to kill them? Or do you want to bring them into the territory that you're defending and shoot them in the back as they're coming in? Well, I think that's a valid point, and you probably have experience with that after serving in Iraq. It's a very simple tactical reality of militarism, of defense, of violent conflict that a guerrilla defense will be more effective than a military defense in terms of how many lives will be lost on the defending side. 
the only people who would tell you otherwise are those who are trying to get more people killed so that they can make more money off of it. But so, for example, how would it work in Iraq then? We had the most powerful military. We defeated their government, but we never really secured the country. That's what you're kind of saying, like what happened here? If someone invaded, they might... Remember, the war in Iraq was not based on the premise that the United States government has the right to come in and actually take over. It was based on their threat, global war on terror, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the global war on terror, you realize that it's happening in a much more modern context than any of the previous force-on-force wars. Like, you go back to Vietnam or World War II, when people were able to say, yeah, our country, our government should be in charge of the world, so we're going to take over because we say so. We've come so far as a species at this point that governments can't really lie to us enough to make that kind of war possible. So you have the global war on terror, which has the same motives, which are power and control, not necessarily glory of the state or conquering or any of that. The empire of the superclass now is behind the scenes of string pullers, of people who move money digitally around the world. And they have engineered the global war on terror not to be won, but to be fought in perpetuity. We literally made enemies while we were there faster than we could kill them. That was by design. So it's the same desire. This war is being conducted by a government looking to expand its protection racket. And its protection racket is based on how much it can spend through the military. And if you've tracked those numbers, I'm sure you have, military spending continues to grow and grow and grow. And as Eisenhower warned us about the evils of the military-industrial complex, we now are immersed in it. And, and as I made the point tonight, the standing army is not just the U.S. military. It's you know, for everything from the TSA to militarized local police to the SWAT teams that work for the Department of Education. So, well, let me put it in context then. So I understand that you're not for our military-industrial complex, and maybe you're not a fan of our government, but surely there are worse governments out there that don't share our, our values. So, for example, even if we were to get rid of our military and our government, what about... Well, well why do you keep saying our? Like, like you have a stake in this? Did I, you? I, I do. You own the military? You own part of You control part of it? You really think that, that you have a say in it? I don't have a I say. Think it's, I think it's our government's military. I think it's the string pullers' military. I don't think it's our military. Our military is the people's military, which would be the militia. Well, all right, fair enough. If you want to make that distinction, I think that as a taxpayer and as a voter, I have some small say in it, but we'll leave that aside. But my point is that I... I'll take our government, imperfect as it is, and our military, imperfect as it is, over someone else's. Would you rather have the Russians imposing their will on us or trying to? Well, first of all, you sound like an abused wife going, well, my husband only beats me this much. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a really, really weak argument. And you can make all sorts of comparisons between governments. Uh, but uh, in the United States, the average American works for government half the year. By that metric, it's among the worst. In terms of economic freedom, the United States is number 20. Uh, in terms of civil liberties, depends how you measure it, but we're not doing that well. So, yeah, there are lots of governments that would be much more uh, conducive to freedom than the American government right now. Absolutely. One of them you mentioned in, in your talk earlier today was Liechtenstein, which I didn't yeah. know. It's a pretty interesting situation. But what what about the opposite? Like, what if we talk about Somalia? I know you said people like to use it as a punching bag. Right. They sort of don't have a strong central government, or they didn't, or I don't know what the status is right now. I think they, they're, they're getting things together a little bit more, but it could also go haywire, right? It could go off the rails. Well, Somalia is an interesting case, and it's generally the way it is because of the foreign intervention in the fishing industry where uh, foreign vessels have interfered with that, which gave rise to the pirate phenomenon in Somalia. And that created incredible economic repression in the area, which led to that desperation and now this really silly international demonization where most people hear the word Somali and the next word they think of is pirate. Mm. 
But if you look at the economics of Somalia for having a decentralized government, and I don't agree with the forms of government, but if you have local religious community-based governments, which was largely what they have is mostly relevant in Somalia, you end up with less people being ripped off by a large central government. And if you look at the quality of life compared to surrounding regions, actually living with less government and more decentralized government has done the Somalis well economically. Economically speaking, what about in other ways? Isn't it sort of a war zone well, the, or was? Well, the pollution that comes in from the, uh, you know, the first world shipping industry that comes through it has ruined the fishing industry in Somalia. Has certainly led to deprivation and conflict around that. But if anything, the uh, the story is really being mistold because the Somalis, who are the pirates, are defending their areas, uh, their access to natural resources from the, the foreign polluters. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess I can't speak as well to the Somalis' fishing rights and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm looking more at, you know, are the Somalis better served with, you're saying they're better off with... Yes, compared to surrounding countries. But economically at, speaking, mm-hmm. what about in other, yep. other ways? Are, are the other countries more stable? Is it safer? Well, I'm sure you could look at lots of other metrics to compare. Okay. But the, with the foreign violent intervention that is unique to Somalia, despite that, they're doing reasonably well, and, and I would say it's in part because they have less centralized government. Okay. The one interesting thing you mentioned in the book, and you just said it earlier, I want to touch on, you said, because of the internet and technology, it's harder for governments to lie to us, and I want to push back on that. We saw. The- oh, yeah, and some, okay, no, 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 hold on, a, a point taken, I see where you're going with this right away, yes, in some ways, push of a button, it's very easy for them to lie and make bigger lies, but... I would stand by my point and my interpretation of that, that if when the government does lie to us, it's much easier to find out the truth. And the big lies that are behind war aren't possible anymore. Like, everybody in Iran wants us dead. Let me get on YouTube and check that. Yeah. You know, it, it, that kind of stuff doesn't fly anymore. So, yeah, they have to resort to false flags, and the worst they can get away with is the global war on terror at this point. And then proxy wars like... Syria today, obviously Libya, you know, a lot, you know, different countries throughout the Arab Spring. I'm glad you mentioned Iran. My father's from Iran. I visited the country a few years ago, and I'll confirm what you said. Uh, Not everybody in Iran America. wants to kill everybody yeah. in America. Okay, <laughs> Whew, we got that out of the way. As a matter of fact, most of the people I talked to there wanted to visit or come here themselves, so can't be can't be all that bad. But my point was, in talking about the internet, what about those things that happened recently, like the Russian interference in the election, that you could have potentially some trolls in Russia or wherever, don't have to pick on Russia, wherever they're from, releasing information that's not true to influence voters. And, you know, if you see something on Facebook, I've seen people on my feed share things that are definitely not true, but who's going to verify and check these things? So lies and manipulation through the internet can be possible. Well, exactly as you just said we have found out where a lot of this manipulation came from Mm -hmm. faster than we ever could have imagined possible prior to the age of the internet. But is that because of the internet we found out or because of investigations? Those investigations prior to the internet Um, would have been squashed. The people behind them would have been murdered Hmm. and we never would have found out about it at all. It almost sounds, so you're saying they would have been murdered, that almost sounds borderline like a conspiracy. Oh, yes, there have been lots in history, if you haven't noticed. Yeah, I, I don't deny that, but, I, I mean, is this something like, are we going to... We won't get into all of it right now, but you're saying the Internet has made it more transparent so that the government is less likely to do things that are that would make a conspiracy. Right. Okay. Well, I, I would also point out that I hope there's more 
foreign meddling in other countries' elections, like the American government has been doing oh. all over the world yeah. for centuries, mm -hmm. so that people realize that the whole thing's a racket and they just give up on turning to statism at all. Can we at least agree that some forms of racket are better than others? Of course. Yeah. So our racket's better than the ones that were maybe interfering in our election. Because we're doing well, right? We're a superpower, you and I. We have comfortable lives. We're not starving. What, what, we're what's not... Russia on the Economic Freedom Index? I don't know. Or Civil Liberties? I have no So, idea. I mean, you're, you're kind of comparing in this Amero fantasy land bubble that's like, you know, we're number one, no questions asked. Well, I didn't say that. I'm sure there are other countries that rank higher in those indexes. I know there are countries that rank higher of in course. those indexes, and there are some countries that have higher outcomes for healthcare, and you name it. But I'm saying we're doing pretty well, right? Relatively speaking. Do we want for anything? Justice? We can we can use justice reforms, but have you been wrong? I want to be able to walk down the street and not feel like I have to be afraid of a guy with a gun and a costume because he has the color of law behind him. But are you afraid of that? Oh, yeah. I've never felt that. I mean, I don't walk around in fear, but I carry that awareness, and I think it really stifles the richness and vibrancy of the world when we all live under this existential fear of government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no doubt if I got pulled over, I would be a little bit nervous just because whenever someone else has a gun, you know, you got to treat them in a certain and way. And less accountability than a normal person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm with you there. So what about uh, state versus federal government? So I know if you want to do away with the federal government, you want to localize it. So as a plan to decentralize it to states and then communities and then... Well, the only authority that I would have as president would be to resign and dissolve the federal government and leave the states as 50 sovereign states. What I'd like to see at that point is that people go, wow, this decentralization was awesome. Look how much more free and safe and prosperous we are. Let's get some more of that. Mm -hmm. And when we dissolve state governments and get it down to the county level, that's when governments are essentially voluntary and you can secede on your own property, create your own community, you can opt out, have different ones, you can have a lot of competition between these governments. And at that point, I would say they kind of break down as governments. They, they cease to be governments and they become community service organizations or city-states or whatever kind of voluntary collective that they want to describe it as. If people still want to call them governments at that point, I won't object because I'll be retired. Well, that sounds crazy. So it's like you're saying every state and then every individual within that state has the right to secede. So I could have the Republic of Jordan, and this is my little property, and then mm -hmm. I don't have to pay taxes to anyone. Of course. Why not? I mean, we're already... It's kind of what this country was founded on, wasn't it? I mean, we're already interconnected in so many ways. I mean, don't you like being in the same country as me? You live in Arizona, oh, I, do. I live in Virginia, well, we're both Americans. I don't think we should be under any country, though. Can't we just be people relating to each other freely without any violent entities standing between us? That's one, that's one option, I suppose so. Without having to get permission to have a contract with you or pay taxes on salary if I hire you or follow regulations and accept other people's rules being imposed on our relationship? Hmm. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I don't know how practical it would be, though. Well, how practical is it to work for government half the year? It's been working so far, hasn't it? Tell that to the people who are in jail for victimless crimes. Tell that to the victims of American military intervention. Tell that to the family who couldn't afford a load of groceries because of one extra parking ticket this month. I mean, I'm assuming other problems would crop up under your system too, right? It wouldn't be this paradise either. Well, again, I'll put it in perspective for you. Mm -hmm. About 90% of the violence done in the world today is done in the name of governments. You get rid of governments, you immediately get rid of 90% of the violence in the world. 
you also get rid of about 90% of the remainder because they're caused directly by government through the war on drugs and the war on poverty. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking about 1% at most. And we're going to come up with better ways of dealing with that than we have today. So while there may be problems as we stumble towards the solutions to these relatively minuscule problems of injustice and calamity, we get to enjoy a world with a lot less violence, a lot less exploitation than we do under the current system. So the, the second thing I wanted to ask you about, because this was just fascinating Wait, the to second me. thing? We're, the, on, the we're sec- on question number two now? No, no. <laughs> we're almost there. I just wanted to ask you about, you use, I want to call it classist language in some of your um, audio book and Thing. I don't know if it's in the presentation, but you're basically talking about government as a democracy legitimizing the rich stealing from the poor in some ways. Well, the working class and the poor, yeah. And that's usually the opposite of what I hear when libertarians usually talk, and they're saying, well, you know, these, these people work hard, they're industrious, and they should keep their money, and what the government does should be minimal, but... Well, hold on, hold on. Most libertarians will also happily make the separation between... The entrepreneur who works hard and busts his butt and is patient and saves and invests and makes himself wealthy versus the robber baron, if you will, mm-hmm. who bribes a politician to give him special favors for his business and gets rich as a result of that. So there are people who are rich legitimately and people who are rich through the state illegitimately. And I absolutely would separate those. And and you're, you're right. And it's the language in the book... Um, I'm actually looking at changing some of that so that it doesn't have that connotation uh, that, that some people would use. But so it's it's not so much classist; it's separating uh, the the existing uh, obvious demographics from the one class that I want to separate of people who deliberately enrich themselves through the violence of the state. And now you also mentioned in the in the presentation today, which is actually the reason I started the Dangerous Ideas podcast. You said, you know, on the media we have these talking heads. We really don't get anything out of the discussion when you watch TV these days. They're just hired guns basically by the democrats and by the republicans they go at it we don't learn anything and that's why i wanted to start the dangerous ideas podcast and i'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. is there anything that you wanted to leave the listeners with or any message that you wanted to ask me being you know someone from a different perspective than you sure well i just hope that you can see there's an important first step in achieving what i see as my ideal society and a lot of people are realizing that a universally nonviolent world would be better than one we have today and that that direction is to take apart the large centralized systems of organized violence. That's the line in the sand that we're drawing with this presidential campaign. Either you're on the side of freedom or you're on the side of government. And government is on the wrong side of history. It is a failed experiment at best. If At worst, it is a racket that we are finally realizing we can do better without. And the first step is to dissolve the United States federal government. It is the biggest empire the world has ever known. We are taking it on head-on, full force with this, to say it shouldn't exist. I'm going in as a bankruptcy agent to dissolve the institution and leave 50 independent states after a peaceful, orderly, responsible transition. I hope that you, at least in your study and consideration of the perspective that I've given you tonight about the relative consequences of the violence of individuals versus the violence of governments that you'll come to the same conclusion and be willing to take this first step with us i'm always open to new ideas thanks jordan adam thank you very much and finally thefreedomline.com three words thefreedomline.com is where you can get my book for free 
in every digital format possible, including the audiobook that Jordan enjoyed. And you can find kokeshfornotpresident.com. You can donate to our 501c3 nonprofit. Find me on DTube and Steam It and all the other fun social media sites where we post content. And I'll link it on the show notes as well. Heck yeah. All right, Adam, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. And there you have it. Adam and I had a great discussion, and while I didn't agree with all the points that he was making, there was some common ground. I agreed with his goals of making a more free and less violent society. I agreed with some of the problems that he correctly pointed out and identified. We just differ on some of the solutions on how to get there. And as we mentioned before, the book Freedom is available online, and I can say for myself that it was definitely worth my time to listen to. Even though I didn't agree with everything, it brought in my perspectives, and I think it helped add to the discussion. And it was very easy to listen to and to follow. And I'll say this on a side note. Uh, whenever I have a big meeting at work coming up and I want to make sure I can think and articulate myself clearly, I do try and listen to an audiobook rather than music in the morning just because I feel like when I have those words flowing through my mind in the morning, it gets my brain active and I'm able to more clearly talk without stumbling over my words throughout the day if I listen to an audiobook as opposed to music. So that's just a tip that I could share with you. I have a couple of other perspective interviews lined up in the coming weeks and I think they're going to be interesting. It looks like the format that we're going to be taking is probably around 40-45 minute long interviews and then I try to do just minimal editing to cut out some of the dead pauses or the ums and ahs just to make it flow a little bit better. So typically an interview might last around 48 minutes and then I'll cut two or three out of it and then you'll have a clean cut 45 minute podcast. And I think that is a good balance between touching on a number of topics and digging into them a little bit if we need to, but also not just fatiguing the listener or the interviewers. I was grateful for Adam because he was on tour and traveling a lot so I could tell he was tired but he still took the time to talk with me and this was late at night also. You could probably hear the crickets. So those are the formats that seem to be working for now. If anybody has any suggestions for guests or for a different format, let me know. I'm happy to consider it. And be sure to take a look at our website, DangerousIdeasPodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at Dangerous Ideas Podcast, and you can follow us there to see some hints as to new interviews that are coming up and also some pictures I take with the people that I'm going to be doing the interviews with and see some of the comments and reactions from other listeners. And lastly, this podcast is also available for download on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And now that we've got all that out of the way, I'll leave you with this. I think Adam made some great points. He pointed out some legitimate problems, and he has admirable goals that he wants to achieve. And now I'll ask you, did Adam convince you that we should abolish the government? Join the discussion on Facebook and let us know what you think. This is Dangerous Ideas. I'm Jordan Gassemi. Be reasonable.